Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today is episode 78 of the show, and we got a great guest with us, Mr. Blaine Walter. And amongst other things, Blaine founded Incord Communications, which grew to be the single largest independently owned healthcare communications company in the world. And currently, he's working at Talisman, which is an investment partnership working with a large variety of businesses in the Ohio Valley area and across the country. We think he's got a lot of great advice for any aspiring entrepreneurs out there, and we hope you guys learn a lot. Before we get to that interview, though, guys, I want to take a moment and ask you all for a quick favor. Go ahead, pick up that phone of yours you were listening to this on, and uh, check out your podcast app, whether it's iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, uh, whatever you like to listen on. Uh, there will be a subscribe button, and if you click that, it'll make sure that you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. And the last thing we want to do before we start the show is take the time to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net. And let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. All right, Conkers, that's all we got. Let's get this show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo. A desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we have Mr. Blaine Walter. And Blaine is currently a partner at Talisman Capital, an investment partnership which partners with businesses across a variety of fields. And before joining Talisman, Blaine was the founder and CEO of Incord Communications, which he built into the largest independently owned healthcare communications company in the world. And uh, Blaine currently pursues and oversees investments in healthcare, information technology, and marketing, as well as professional services for Talisman. And welcome to Conquering Columbus Plain. We're excited to have you on the show today. 
Great. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, so you just talked to us a little bit. You came all the way up here from Louisville today. And uh, how, how was the trip down to Louisville? Uh, it was pretty easy. It was down this morning and back this afternoon. Uh, we, uh, uh, as part of Talisman, look into uh, multifamily uh, real estate investing. And we were looking at uh, a couple of sites down there. And uh, a lot like Columbus, uh, Louisville's growing and growing quickly. And um, you know, all sorts of different kind of housing dynamics are uh, being under consideration. Yeah, definitely. So um, is that kind of what a typical day looks like for you usually? Or, I mean, do you have a typical day? Uh, no, I don't really have a typical day. Um, I have things that I like to do every day. But, um, you know, some days, uh, so I manage, uh, you know, probably uh, five or six different investments where I'm responsible for them. That may include visiting customers, sitting with management team. Uh, it may be just reading about the industry. You know, some days are very planned. Other days, uh, you know, not so much. Some days, uh, all five of the or six of the companies will will call needing something or have a board meeting or what have you. And other days, uh, you know, I'm the loneliest guy on the planet. It's it's a nice mix because um, for the most part, I've got pretty good control over my calendar. I know where I'm going to be. Um, and uh, days where I don't have a lot going on, I'm prospecting looking for new opportunities and different businesses to, to explore so in the intro we talked about you know investments in healthcare IT marketing and now you're talking about investments in real estate so it sounds like you got a very um, broad range of things that you're focused on so before we dive into that in too much detail maybe let's set the stage and talk about your path to where you are today maybe a little about your childhood um, education and then we'll jump into everything that you got going on right now sure happy to so I spent uh, uh, so I was born in 1970 which is uh, a lot earlier than you guys by looks. Uh, born here in Columbus, um, I grew up uh, in Ar- uh, Upper Arlington um, until I was uh, probably 16, and then moved out to Dublin. I went to a uh, Catholic grade school, and then I went to the Columbus Academy. Um, I'm the middle uh, son of uh, uh, a three-boy family. Uh, my older brother also lives in Columbus uh, and works alongside of me at Talisman. My younger brother's in Boston. Um, what does he do out in Boston? Uh, he invests in uh, industrial real estate. He developed his own fund, and um, uh, both of us were graduates of Boston College. Both of us met our wives at Boston College. Um, his wife was from uh, the area, and uh, pretty much the condition of him marrying, him, marrying her by her father was uh, that uh, you know he needs to stay pretty close. Um, my wife was further away. Uh, she was uh, born and raised in Bolivia, and... Uh, I was pretty clear I, I wasn't living in Bolivia, and uh, she uh, has come to love Columbus, and, and we, have, uh, we have three kids ourselves. Boston College. What made you choose Boston College? Uh, first, they let me in, um, but uh, all kidding aside, um, you know, we, as a family, we were um, sort of East Coast oriented. Um, it didn't hurt that my dad said that I could look at any college in the United States, but uh, he'd only pay for the ones that are east of the Mississippi. So uh, that narrowed down half the schools. But um, look, I wanted a school that was uh, right down the middle. Maybe being a middle kid, I wanted a school that was uh, mid-sized. It's 8,500. So, you, you know, it's not a tiny little large school, um, but it's not, you know, a huge uh, state school as well. I wanted a school that um, uh, had both liberal arts foundation, but also had technical uh, uh, training skills, and I was in the uh, undergraduate business program there. And third, you know, Boston, for me, uh, as a place to go to school, you know, a quarter of the population uh, is university kids. And, um, you know, 
one of the funny things about Boston College is it's not in Boston and it's not a college it's a university, um, but it's right there on on the outside of the city, and and uh, so it's got its own campus, and yet it's connected to you know a great city. What did your parents do growing up? So uh, my dad was an entrepreneur. Um, one of the I would say one of the most uh, uh, impactful things that uh, I got to witness uh, growing up was. Um, you know, my dad's transformation of a company here locally called Cardinal Health. Um, and what was great about it is I watched it sort of from its infancy. He uh, made the investment in 1971. Uh, the company went public in 1984. I was 14. I remember going through road shows and uh, you know, meeting with the different banks. I went alongside of uh, uh, you know, him to key meetings and you know, customer visits. So I got a lot of great exposure and it was at that point, a very, very small uh, company. It was very unknown. Um, it wasn't really, its major growth time, uh, time and its visi most visible time actually happened after I was, you know, well into college and, and years out. So I, you know, I had a, uh, you know, I watched him, you know, pay the bills with, with my mom. It was a, you know, full-time stay-at-home mom. I watched him, you know, when making different trade-offs and judgments. And, um, and so I feel very fortunate that, you know, I got to see that that journey without, you know, um, and the decisions and trade-offs and choices and how hard he worked and uh, and um, you know, so it was a great environment to to have grown up in. It's obviously grown into a you know a global company now and and uh, you know tens of thousands of employees. But um, when I remember days when the Columbus office had less than you know 20 people. And, uh, you know, in Talisman today is the same uh, administrative assistant my dad's had since, you know, who used to type up my college papers uh, or my, my high school papers uh, back when they still had typewriters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so uh, growing up around that, I mean, did you, were you always drawn to an entrepreneurial mindset yourself? And is that kind of, did it make you want to lean towards that healthcare side of things? Yeah, it was much less about the healthcare, but I knew... Uh, from a very young age that I wanted to have my own business. Um, I had watched, while it's incredibly hard work and it's more stressful to be, in some ways it's more stressful to be the person who's accountable to a lot of people. In other cases, there's a lot of, uh, of benefits, you know, not only financially, but um, just different degrees of freedom that you have. And um, so it was less about being healthcare and more about trying to find an opportunity where there was a you know an exciting possibility to grow a business that um, you know could eventually scale and and um, and you know do something valuable for for you know for your customers. So you obviously you graduated summa cum laude with a degree in marketing and finance coming out of college. Obviously, I mean that's a great achievement, and then. You got out and you did you go right into creating your first company or what did that path kind of look like for you up until in court yeah so i um i knew that i uh wanted to um to come back to columbus um you know i think it's a great city um but i knew that if i came back immediately after college um i'd never get the opportunity to to go other places um ironically um the first company I bought was called GSW, which later became a subsidiary of Incord when I created Incord. And um, I had interned there um, 
and I uh, had developed a relationship with the founder, uh, Bob Gerbic, who um, was like a second father figure to me. And he offered me a job uh, right out of school. I told him I'd be a better partner and then better potential owner if I developed some of the finance skills. And so I went to work as a mergers and acquisitions analyst at Smith Barney in New York. And after about 18 months, and uh, he kept telling me that that the advertising business is a young person's business, and that uh, you know he had a defined timeline in which he wanted to exit, and um, we negotiated a, kind of a, an understanding. And uh, he's the kind of guy that you could, you know, his word was his bond, and you know he, you know, he sort of laid out it. He said, if you can grow the business, and uh, I'll sell it to you at X price, and um, I sort of said, geez, that's a great opportunity. Um, we were had a little bit of focus in healthcare. We had a lot, uh, a little bit of focus on everything else. Sort of generalist. And um, when I got to the firm, I noticed that the healthcare clients paid their bills, and uh, they didn't nickel and dime me on all the different things that we did, and and that some of the other clients were just more fickle. And uh, so I began dialing and just trying to do as much business development, meet as many people, and. Um, we, you know, became um, successful at you know getting some companies to listen to our, our pitch and why we ought to do what, uh, work for them. And um, but I, I you know I know I knew early on that uh, that was my goal to to find a business. What were some of the projects you guys were working on when you first began to grow with the company? So the first um, so the pharmaceutical industry one of the things that's really interesting is that, um, you know, it's it's really clustered in New Jersey and, and California and, you know, Chicago and, 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 of course, Boston now with biotech. And uh, we had been lucky uh, that um, through some relationships, we had one account really with Abbott Laboratories and uh, out of, uh, that was fostered by the relationship that started here with what used to be the Ross Nutrition Company, which is now Abbott Nutrition. And... Uh, we threw some work there. We had gotten introdu introduced to the uh, the uh, uh, some folks up in in Chicago, and just got a couple of opportunities. Um, and then we we uh, there was one pharmaceutical company here at the time. It was called uh, Pharmacia, which uh, had a growth hormone product, um, and we convinced them that local was you know the way to go. That gave us enough credibility to pitch Eli Lilly and Company, which was really the the, the catapulting uh, period in, in in our time. At that, in 1997, to put it in perspective, we had 97 employees. Um, a year later, we had uh, over 350, and much of that incremental growth was as a result of we we were one of 25 selected to pitch all of the brands at Eli Lilly, which included, you know things like Prozac and their diabetes franchise. And, and I thought, geez, we're this little company competing with a lot of the Madison Avenue companies. If we could just get a little piece, get our foot in the door, show them that, you know, like them, we've got similar Midwestern values, we'll do what we say we're going to do. And we pitched it, and we gave the pitch of our life. We took the entire company on a bus, and we, we said, we've got 97 reasons why you ought to select us. And we walked them over to the window, and we said, look outside. And every, the whole company was cheering. You know, we had probably 10 people in the pitch, and. 87 outside, and we said, you know, and with signs that say, we want your business. And, you know, sometimes it's not just what you say, but the, the passion with which you say it. And I thought, geez, we're, we might get a shot here. And 
And uh, lo and behold, I got a phone call from the procurement team. He said, hey, we've got a problem. Uh, we, we intended to go from 25 agencies down to four and kind of divide up our products. He said, you're the number one, your, your firm is the number one choice of every single one of our brand managers. How many brands can you take? And I was quickly doing the math on my phone, or my head, I probably needed my phone then. Um, and basically, uh, I said all but one. And my rationale was, I always wanted them to be able to compare us to you know, our competitors. One, so that we'd stay sharp, and two, so that they had some period, of, some, some means of having some relativity, because you know, a lot of what goes on in advertising and marketing uh, can be subjective. And um, from that point on, we became sort of recognized in the industry that led to other opportunities with other major pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer and Glaxo and Johnson & Johnson that we ended up working with over the years. And what did the transition into Incor look like? Like, when did that happen? Yeah, so one of our strategies was um, that was different about the pharmaceutical advertising that was being done at the time was um, the pharmaceutical what I call healthcare transaction model, how you, you, how you initiate awareness, trial, and usage was changing. Um, in 1997, direct-to-consumer advertising was allowed for the first time ever. Uh, before, you could never uh, go online uh, or you couldn't uh, uh, use broadcast to generate awareness of your product. So, uh, and as we all know now, if you watch 60 Minutes, 60% 60 of those uh, commercials are, you know, are, are pharmaceutically based. And so I saw that landscape changing. I also saw that um, most of the companies were more sales focused than marketing focused. And so I hired a bunch of um, ex-client side people who brought marketing expertise and paired them together with our folks who had advertising expertise. And what that allowed us to do was then develop other capabilities that were complementary to advertising. Uh, we helped our clients with pricing and consulting and. Uh, market development and uh, the internet. And, and as I started to, those other disciplines, I added um, other companies in the mix, uh, both ones, either ones that we had bought or other ones that we had started. And so since GSW was really now a peer of those companies, I introduced the concept of Incord. And the concept of Incord was uh, picking up on, on the idea of a chord in music and that you can have uh, certainly a rich experience playing one note, but if you play multiple notes, it's more complex. And the idea was, hey, look, why don't you have us be the general contractor and the architect, and we'll bring in all of these uh, disciplines in the right, right amount, coordinated along the same message, so that we can make sure that you know, every dollar you're spending has the most amount of impact, and then we're able to deliver you those, those solutions in the most efficient way, because you don't have an account person for each. Uh, communications discipline. Yeah, and did you see that amplification of those dollars being spent? Like, did you see better results, say, from the marketing team by combining those, like your marketing efforts, by combining those dollars into one? Does that make sense? I did, yeah. I think the, um, you know, you there's a lot of infighting, right, when you have multiple different companies with different ownership um, uh, saying, hey, what's, you know, you need to spend $5 million on public relations. No, no, if you do that, you're going to take $10 million out of the ad budget. You know, $10 <laughs> million out of the ad budget. No, you need to be more online. We could literally look with our clients and we could say, listen, we have one singular media planner and buyer, 
that's going to out that's going to uh, make the recommendation on, on how you ought to allocate those dollars. It doesn't matter to us since we have all those disciplines, and um, and so we're going to be able to put your money against the right strategies and tactics, and we're going to be able to do it for cheaper for two reasons. One, we're in Columbus, Ohio, and number two, we, uh, you know, we don't, there's not duplic uh, duplicative, you know, account people. So did you see other competitors, I guess, if you had competitors across the industry, like consolidating and bring these services in the same fashion, or were you guys the only one that was really bringing it into one package? Yeah, there were others that uh, certainly uh, had all these capabilities. Um, what made us unique is ours was really all on one backbone, so one accounting department, one IT department, and so we were built from the day from day one to work that way. Um, you know, a lot of the holding companies, large conglomerate holding companies like WPP or Omnicom, they might have all those assets, but they're scattered amongst across 100,000 employees. Their direct-to-consumer shop might be their direct-to-consumer shop might be uh, focused on, um, you know, Ford one week and Pfizer the next. And so um, I think it was an ability to have a singular culture, the ability to work together, common operating systems and terminology. And so I think we had a head start by building it with that vision in, in mind as opposed to what they had to do, which was break it down and try and integrate something that had already been disintegrated. Yeah, so kind of the ideation of building from the inside out rather than the outside in, you guys kind of just made it a simpler process for these customers that you're working with and more cohesive to understand everything that was being delivered to them. Yeah, and the world was changing. So the other thing to add, a com to add complexity at the time was uh, the United States used to count for 80% of worldwide drug sales. Um, I would say today it's probably, it's definitely less than 50, it might be around 40. And so um, the business had to globalize as well. And so it's difficult enough to get all those players to work together on a US level, but then how do you do it globally? And I, in 2000, I thought about selling the business um, and ultimately didn't. Uh, but the reason why I was considering it is we were facing um, really a fundamental change in the, in the business. I was either gonna have to figure out how to build a global network, and um, which would take capital uh, as well as management talent and expertise. And the other thing that happened is you had dramatic shift in media. You know, the internet had, by the time had become a major category of spend. Broadcast became a major category of spend. Media buying became important. And I thought long and hard and I met with a lot of the holding companies and I ultimately didn't merge with them because I didn't feel like the things that I had built that I thought were differentiating about our ability to serve our clients, A, would become even stronger, and more than that, I feared that they would actually become weaker. And so, um, you know, we used to pitch against what we called the holding companies, where they hold all these different assets, and we branded ourselves the releasing company, which we were able to release these ideas to you, and I thought that that would, uh, I thought that that would be perhaps in jeopardy. Um, ultimately, I sold in 2005 to, um, a company called uh, Ventive Health. We were in cord and together we became Inventive. Um, and the reason why I did that is I thought it was a more clever way to continue that. I, I think anytime you can find something and just be obsessive about it, rather than 
you know, we got asked to do along the way different things that were outside of the healthcare industry, and and uh, you know, we just kept sticking to our knitting. You know, we were 98% you know healthcare focused, and so we had things in our company that no holding company would ever care to have, but they were critical to helping our pharma and biotech customers. Uh, it, well, Ventive Health were, were the largest uh, provider of, of contract sales representatives uh, in the U.S., and they also had a clinical research um, operation. And so I thought by combining together, um, we would be, not only be able to coordinate those things that I talked about before and on the communication side, but we'd be able to advise our clients, you know, how, to, how do you think about the sales rep in terms of, you know, everything's a trade-off. You, you know, if you want to go add 500 sales reps uh, to your already 500, well, that's going to take away from, you know, the marketing budget. And again, going back, we could advise them how to do that. Also, prospectively, if you're going to do a clinical trial, um, it's not just about what's going to get the drug approved by the FDA, but what is it you're going to need to um, convince payers of? And that, that's really a marketing issue at the end of the day. And so by having these kind of capabilities, um, we're really one of a kind in being able to say to our clients, listen, you know, we've got oncologists on staff, pharmacists on staff, we've got sales executives, there's a body of experience. And so our, our people really have a lot of confidence uh, that, you know, hey, we, we were different. And, uh, and you know, and um, I, I would tell you, our best people were the people that were most curious you know, that wanted to spend a little extra time at the end of the day figuring out, hey, what does that one division over there in Raleigh-Durham do? What, what do those guys do? And it's, it's not just that division, but what do the people do? And the people that really were the best inside Inventive were the people that were the most curious and, you know, uh, were good at making connections because um, there weren't too many issues that our clients were facing that we hadn't seen somewhere, you know, in the business. So in 05, when you guys kind of partnered, I, I mean, you sold, but at the same time, it almost seems like more of a partnership. You guys kind of came together. Can you talk about what your employee numbers are at, like revenues, things like that, and then how Inventive has transitioned into today and how they're doing now? Is that something that? Yeah, oh, you're gonna you're gonna uh, test my memory on the uh, so I, I in court at that point was probably uh, probably. 1,500 people, um, I would say, uh, and probably 180 million, um, and I would say 70% of that was in the U.S. and 30% were out in. We had offices in Japan and and uh, UK and France and Spain and mostly Western Western Europe and. Uh, an advantage of that time was probably around 7,000, my guess. Um, and um, so I had a two-year earnout, um, and I had mentioned that I, earlier that I wanted to get smart capital to go in and, and round out some of the other areas that I thought were important. We did probably 20 different acquisitions. Um, I became CEO in uh, June of 2008. Um, after my earnout had expired, and um, I think at that time, revenues were probably combined uh, close to uh, a billion two, a billion three, and we probably had, uh, you know, I'm guessing, you know, eight to ten thousand employees. 
strategically, I mean, it obviously was, it turned out to be a really good move then in the long run. It worked out well for you guys. It did. Uh, it, it did work out well. It, um, you know, today Inventive, um, uh, well, I'd say in, at the end of 2000 and uh, at the end of 2016, Inventive probably had revenues of a little under two and a half uh, billion, uh, grew to about 15,000 employees. Um, and uh, we merged Inventive with uh, another company called uh, INC that um, that transaction uh, closed uh, uh, earlier uh, this year. And um, that allowed us to ad add additional scale uh, all over the globe on the, on the clinical research side. Um, but, you know, customers have responded positively. I think it's given more opportunities for employees. and. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, they continue to win in the marketplace. And so, I, you know, if, if as evidenced by the, you know, the customer reaction has been good. Yeah, are you still involved? So I'm uh, still an investor. I was on the board uh, all the way through August, um, uh, but not neither in a board capacity nor, uh, you know, nor uh, on the management team. And with your dad's success, as you were growing that company and, I mean, leading 1,500 people and 8,000 people, like, something that most people will never experience in their life, did you turn to him a lot for advice and feedback and just to kind of understand how he was able to manage and grow such a successful company on his end? Yeah, I did. I mean, um, I would say, uh, you know, probably talk to him, uh, you know, 60%, my mom 40%, um, and, you know, they provide different types of advice you know my I remember um, my first earnings call probably one of the more challenging things I had to deal with was um, my first earnings call was August of 2008 and as you may remember you know the world started to come unglued and one of the first things that that uh, companies cut are sales and marketing well that, that's pretty much what we do and uh, I was looking forward into how those cuts were impacting us and they were you know Every day, clients were starting to pull back and starting to pull back and starting to pull back. And you know, I was about ready—I had just been named CEO. I was about ready to give my first gu earnings guidance, and um, and I remember I, I you know, had, I, I could see the the iceberg in front of me, and I remember saying to my dad, "Hey, you know, boy, how do you how do you pitch this story?" He's like, "Man, it was." I said, "I don't know how to you know communicate this other than you know." Tell people what I see, and you know, and he was very direct. He's like, wait, well, listen, you know, when the facts are are as challenging as they are, it, it's hard to tell a good story, uh, and you know, just tell the truth, and you know, uh, you know, whereas my mom uh, was you know, just great in terms of, well, how, you know, how do you feel about it, and so I had sort of a little bit of a, a head in the heart. Yeah, I love the way you describe that because we had a, uh, and this is kind of a twist. I don't want to take away from your story, but it's funny because we had a coach in college who was like very successful individual but very direct and when when news got bad he just he would just say you know you gotta, you gotta tell it out is and his name Lou Roselli and it sounded just like when the way you depicted it like everything about his the way he, he handled people managed things and just conveyed news and you would take it in a way where you say you know it sucks but I feel real I feel like I understand whether it's a company or an individual that's leading a team like where this is going and I trust it and they, they continue to believe in it which is an interesting thing to hear from well, I mean, it, uh, you know, it was, it was a rough day. I mean, I remember, um, I mean, I was taking down our guidance uh, substantially, um, and 
we saw the downturn faster just because of the nature of what it is that we do than, uh, than so we were a couple of months ahead and people couldn't understand why is everybody cutting and not only were the were there global uh, financial challenges that were uh, brewing all over but there were on top of that uh, challenges specific to pharma uh, that only added to the the challenges. Um, drugs were coming off patent that they had relied on for substantial revenues, um, and yet it was more and more difficult to get things approved out of the FDA. So they had their own pain in addition to the global pain. And uh, I, I can't remember exactly, but you know our stock was down, you know, 20% on the day of the call plus. I mean, it was, uh, and I had people calling and uh, you know upset at me, and you know it was. Uh, you know, I was telling them, "Here's the situation I inherited. Here's, you know, what we're going to do about it." And, you know, they were starting to see, you know, from all the other businesses. So it was just a very challenging time. And um, after our stock, our stock went all the way down to six. And I remember, and we were valued at like two times EBITDA. And I, I said, "This is crazy. I, this is never going to be a better buying opportunity." So I actually went the other direction, started buying, and then that gave some support to the stock around January and February. And then um, I realized that the public markets weren't going to be uh, helpful to us. We weren't going to be doing a lot of acquisitions. We were going to spend a lot of time, um, it, it, you know, trying to educate people that, um, you know, when there's times of great fear, um, you know, people can really listen and listen too carefully, you know, that, well, geez, they've got a patent problem, drugs are more expensive, drugs are shifting from these retail products like Prozac and lifestyle drugs like Viagra and to these specialty drugs, they're not going to need as many sales reps, boy, Inventive's really going to be in trouble. And, and I just thought it was not going to be helpful to be in the public market, so I ended up taking the business private um, with Thomas H. Lee in, uh, in uh, 2010 uh, so that we could you know, just to really focus on ourselves and, and, and you know, try and strengthen the business. And uh, that was, that was uh, you know, turned out to be a great move for, for uh, you know, the shareholders then and as well as, you know, the new shareholders. Yeah, it's, it's funny, you know, that mob mentality you see in the public markets where if it's, everything's are bad, everything's going down. And if things are good, eh, it's okay, some bad news, we'll, we'll, we'll brush it right off. But like when things are bad, a little bit of bad news, stocks go crashing. I, it's, it's kind of an interesting, um, I saw, I can't remember what it was, but it was like a, uh, it was a cartoon. I can't okay. remember what it's from, but it was, you know, there's one guy on the other end, and he's on the phone, and he's yelling, what, bye? And then, like, goes, goes down the line, and then by the time he gets back around, it's the guys, the guys over here yelling, sell, and it's just like a circle of people just listening to each other, and it's like, um, there's a chain reaction, you know what I mean, with right. the stock market, but. Well, you know, it's, it's Warren Buffett that says, you know, when, when people get greedy, get fearful, and when mm -hmm. people are fearful, it's time to get greedy. And, and you know, who knows when that is? And you know, certain people that had clearly he does. <laughs> <laughs> He's got it down. <laughs> so from there, um, when did you eventually back off and join Talisman? Yeah. So I uh, I left uh, Inventive in uh, 2011. At that point, I had a, a daughter entering uh, seventh or eighth grade, and I and um, I thought that, um, you know, I was spending a lot of time, our, at that point, you know, we probably 40% of our employees were outside of the U.S., and so, 
you know, you got to go visit your employees. And, and I, um, uh, so I, I left in 2011, and um, it was a, it was an interesting transition. I mean, I, I was kind of exhausted from being CEO and exhausted from the travel and, and certainly the, uh, the, the capital markets at that time. And uh, I had always been doing private investing alongside, even though I'd had this book independently and uh, with my brothers and my dad. Um, but now here I was going to shift from being a full-time operator where, you know, you've got a predictable Monday and predictable Friday and you've got your team meeting and you've got that adrenaline rush when you pitch a client and you win it. Uh, and um, they're shifting to full-time looking for deals. And um, I, uh, you know, in 2011, I, I said this is really, um, it was a hard transition because you're used to knowing where you're going to go every day. Uh, you get a lot of satisfaction from that. Uh, at the same time, I man, I was completely ready for, um, you know, a different change of pace. And um, I started doing Ironman competitions that year. And um, so, so I, one thing I am is compulsive. So you know, it was either work 100 miles an hour, or when I wasn't working 100 miles an hour, it was you know trying to work and train and, and a lot of, met a lot of great friends doing that and um, I did uh, get my wife into doing it. Uh, my dad even did a, a, a quarter, quarter Iron Man and um, you know, it was a great time. And then um, as I started to build up portfolio companies, I, I, love, the, I love the flexibility and, um, and I love the chance to meet different people. Uh, you know, these are most of the deals that I do with. You know, I'm partnering with an operator who, you know, is uh, looking for different advice or different outside perspective. Maybe they've always this has been the only business they've ever run, and they, you know, and so it'd be, hey, how do you how do you handle this compensation situation, or how do you handle this different difficult uh, employee matter, or can you help me think through an acquisition or capital structure? And so it's really rewarding to be able to work with somebody, and you know, a lot of times they take your ideas and a lot of times they don't. So in that way it's different than having 100% control of being an operator. And so there's, it's, it's different. Um, I wouldn't trade the time I spent at Inventive for anything and I'm really loving what I do now. So now essentially you get to have your hands in a lot of different elements of a bunch of different companies but you're primarily focusing on still the healthcare segment and then dealing a little bit in other industries as well or? No, I'm actually, uh, I'm biased away from healthcare. I, I uh, the, the, and there's a couple reasons for that. I mean, I'm still invested in a, a couple of different healthcare companies. Uh, you know, um, still invested in, in, in Inventive. I'm still uh, invested in my brother's first uh, healthcare transaction. So I feel like, um, you know, from a diversification standpoint, it's wise to, you know, to look to other industries. I think, you know, from a, you know, interest standpoint, it's also good to learn about, you know, other industries. What I did do first when I, uh, got back into doing this is I did want to focus on business services. Um, most people in the private equity space, um, they hate people-intensive businesses. Um, it makes their head spin. I'm completely the opposite. I think if you can get a people-oriented business, well, every business in my opinion is people-oriented, but if you can get a people-intensive business and really get a high focused, passionate culture and um, give people a leash 
you know, tell them what mountain you want to take, but don't tell them exactly how to get there. You can do great things. It's not a lot of capex. It's you know investment in people, and um, and so I wanted to find something. And so uh, locally here, there's a business called uh, ICC that's uh, in the uh, technology solution space. We provide application development, uh, business intelligence, user, user experience, and trying to help our customers design, you know, utilize technology to improve customer experiences. Um, it's a fantastic business. So we've got a great partner there, and um, uh, I'm invested in, as I said, in real estate, uh, some in manufacturing. Um, there's a little bit of healthcare, um, but that's really more healthcare analytics and um, and a business. It's more of a business solution company. And uh, but I, you know, the one of the things that is unique about the healthcare, and specifically unique about pharmaceutical and biotech is there's a, there's a really binary investments if you think about it. Um, that drug is, is either going to show positive or negative clinical results upon which it's either going to get approved by the FDA in which case it's a very big day for those guys uh, or it's not and in which case you know there might be tons of expenses gone into something that you know is basically worthless and so unless you weren't going to be placing a lot of those bets, um, you know, it, you're just too concentrated in a singular binary event. And um, whereas, you know, for example, business services business might have, we might have, you know, the top 10 customers, you know, account for 30 or 40 percent of the revenue and, you know, one could get acquired or one could go out of business or one could, uh, you know, not like the service you're providing. Never happens, of course, but, um, <laughs> and it's not going to, you know, you still, still get your legs to stand on. Definitely. So I uh, want to touch on a little bit on your thoughts on the city of Columbus, doing business in Columbus, living in Columbus. And what do you feel like the biggest pros and cons are for our city? Maybe we could even talk about, I don't know if you have any opinions, maybe this is just naive for me to conglomerate these together, but like the cover my meds getting acquired and like these healthcare companies that are um, kind of popping up and we're kind of becoming like, I guess, known for like a hotbed startup community in that area. So given yeah. the background, it's interesting. Look, I, I think Columbus is a... Uh, fantastic place to do business. Um, I think it's a highly educated workforce. It's collaborative that um, has an appropriate kind of chip on their shoulder. Uh, you know, you, you find people that believe enough in themselves that they can do it, but they're not blinded by, um, you know, overconfidence. And so I think great people. I think the infrastructure is great. Um, I think the business community is very supportive of one another. I mean, I think the collaboration that happens in different between, you know, tech funds and the Columbus Partnership and, you know, the city and, and uh, the government is, um, uh, I think, is incredibly important. And I think it's incredibly um, uh, powerful. I think it's, it's, there's a lot behind these things that happen. Um, and so I'm, I'm bullish on Columbus. I, I, it's also you know an easy place to live, and and when, when you know you can get, you know downtown in twenty or thirty minutes, um, you know that's, that's versus an hour, an hour and a half if you're living somewhere, you know, that's a competitive advantage. I mean, you've got an, an hour and a half to, you know, you know you've got an hour or two hours each day. To, you know, when you add it up, uh, go on a round trip that, you can be doing something else. You know, maybe taking. Another 
key call or meeting with another customer or, or it just I think it's a competitive advantage. Definitely. And one of the last questions we always like to ask here uh, centers around the theme of our show, which is live uncomfortably. And does it means, you know, a little more than just putting yourself outside your comfort zone. Uh, but what do you think of when you hear the phrase and kind of how does it apply to your life? How to play? Uh, well, I think living uncomfortably is, um, to me, is continuing to uh, expose yourself to learning. If you're not learning every day, you got to change what you're doing. Um, I think that the minute you think you got it, uh, somebody's going to come and conquer you. And um, and so I try and find something new every year to do uh, differently than I did the year before. Uh, you know, whether it was picking up the Ironman, I was never a runner, a biker, a swimmer. Um, you know, or investing in a different business. I, I think if it if it doesn't hurt a little bit. Um, you're probably not growing, and um, you know, and, I, and you see that. And, and I have a lot of respect. There's you know, a lot of great people here pushing the envelope in Columbus, and you know, I, I think uh, what you guys are doing by telling everybody's story is fantastic. Yeah, well, thanks a lot, Blaine. We appreciate that. Uh, Josh, you got any last questions for Blaine before we sign off here? That's all I got. It was an awesome time. I appreciate your insight and for sitting down with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, again, thanks a lot, Blaine, and thanks a lot, Conquerors, for joining us. We hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. Uh, we will talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is, and go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know you have to choose it and yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me 
There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.